Bible in front of you, I would invite you to turn to that portion of Scripture we read just a few moments ago. Matthew 26. <coughs> and the account of Gethsemane. Now, folks, it's only really just um, a couple of weeks until it is Good Friday. So, on that, let me ask you a question. What does Easter mean to you? When you hear that Good Friday's just around the corner, when you hear that it's Easter soon, where does your mind go? What do you think? It's Easter. Do you think Cadbury's cream eggs? Is that where your mind goes? Do you think of the Easter bunny? Do you think of the sort of beginnings of spring and, and yellow tulips and that sort of thing? Is that what you think of? Well, over the next couple of Sunday mornings, what we're going to do is we're going to have a very short sermon series. And it's called, What's So Special About Easter? Okay, what's so special about Easter? And at this point, I'm going to ask you to consider doing something. I'm going to ask you to consider inviting someone along to church next Sunday morning. You see, over the next couple of Sundays, we're going to be looking at, firstly, the death of Jesus Christ. And then the weekend after that, we are going to be looking at his resurrection from the dead. And let's be frank about this. The bottom line, surely, is that the people in our lives need to hear about that, don't they? The people in our lives, people in your life, they need to be confronted with the real meaning of Easter. So please, prayerfully consider inviting someone along to church next Sunday morning. Okay, what is so special about Easter? What's so special about Easter? So this morning, let's look at an event that kind of anticipates the cross. An event that leads up to the cross. Let's look at the Garden of Gethsemane and what happens there. Gethsemane. Let's consider our first point this morning. The first point is this. The source of Jesus' sorrow. Got it? The source. The source of Jesus' sorrow. Right, let me take you back in time uh, a hundred years. Well, in fact, right back to the year 1528. Because that was the year that a, a Christian reformer, Christian guy by the name of Patrick Hamilton, he was executed for his faith. And he was executed for his faith outside a place called, I think it was St. Salvatore's Chapel which is uh, in St. Andrews. So this is Patrick Hamilton. And I've got Patrick Hamilton's last words here. And I'll read them out. This is what he said just before he was executed, okay? He said, to the crowd that was waiting, he said, the only thing that I can give you is the example of my death. 
which I pray thee to bear in mind. For though this death be bitter in the flesh, and though this death be fearful before men, yet this death, it is the entrance into eternal life, which none shall possess who deny Jesus Christ. What do you think? Those are quite spectacular last words, are they not? In the face of death, what poise the man shows. What a calmness. He's collected, isn't he? He's calm, he's composed. But is that not entirely and absolutely different to the state that we find Jesus in in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's nothing like that. You see, Jesus, like he's done many times before, Jesus goes here to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he goes this time with his disciples. But he leaves some of the disciples at one point in the garden, doesn't he? And he carries on with just Peter, James, and John. And then he leaves Peter, James, and John too, doesn't he? And he walks on a wee bit further by himself in order to pray with his father. And then as he does that, you know, as Jesus prays, he is suddenly, suddenly engulfed by grief, isn't he? He sorrows. And he falls to the ground, and that's the, falls to the ground in prayer. It's the only instance that we've got in all, in any of the gospels of Jesus falling to the ground like this to, to pray. And he, so he's down in the dirt, and he's, he's crying out to God in prayer. You see, it's a scene of unbridled torment, isn't it? It's a scene where Jesus Christ is is panicking. It's a million miles away from, from Patrick Hamilton. Jesus Christ isn't composed and he isn't calm. He's falling to pieces at Gethsemane. But okay, why? Why? Why is Jesus like this? You see, something's got to be up, doesn't it? Something has to be happening at Gethsemane. Because Jesus, you know, we're familiar with Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus was a, a brave man, wasn't he? Think about all the things he, he faced throughout his life. He was a brave man. Yet, much lesser men have faced death more courageously than this. So what is going on here? What is this all about? Why does he have this reaction? Well, the key to understanding why Jesus is uh, so upset is one word that he uses in his prayer, okay? And it is the word cup. Did you notice that when we're reading through it? He asks that the cup be taken from him when he prays. Now, have you ever wondered why it's a cup? 
Because it's, you know, it seems to be kind of weird imagery, doesn't it? Why, at this point, when he's so upset, why does he talk about a cup? Well, it harks back to the Old Testament. It harks back to Old Testament prophecy. Because in the Old Testament, the cup represented God's anger and wrath at sin being poured out. You got it? The cup was God's anger at sin being poured out. So you've got verses like Isaiah 51, 22. It says there, it talks about the cup. It talks about the goblet of God's wrath. You see, folks, Jesus is upset here. Because his was no ordinary death. He is upset here because his death was to go hand in hand with God's wrath being poured out upon him. That's why he falls to the ground. That's why is his face in the dirt as he cries out to his God. John Calvin says about this. It's a great quote. This is Calvin. He says, It was not the simple horror of death. It was not the passing away from the world. It was the sight of the dreaded tribunal and vengeance of God that came to Jesus at Gethsemane. See, in Gethsemane, the cross, it became all the more real to Jesus. You know, in that garden in Gethsemane, Jesus is given an insight into what becoming sin for us was actually going to be like. In that garden, in Gethsemane, the door to hell was pushed ajar and Jesus was given a glimpse of what awaited him on the cross. So no wonder he's upset, right? No wonder Jesus is sorrowing to the point of death. Right, let's try and apply that in a couple of ways. The sorrow, let's apply it in a couple of ways. One's quite technical. The first one's quite technical. It's it's quite theological, but it's no less important because of that. Now, a few years ago, a book was written. And the book was called The Lost Message of Jesus. The Lost Message of Jesus. And in that book, the authors of the book they tried to do was they tried to cast doubt on the fact that Jesus had died in atonement for sin. Okay? They said that the idea that Jesus died and was punished by his father for sin, they said that idea was tantamount 
to child abuse. And perhaps, you know, especially in a city like ours, perhaps in London, and perhaps in the modern age, the age that we live in, where the evangelical world is changing and denominational barriers are breaking down. Perhaps we are going to be exposed to ideas like, like those, of those authors. We might be exposed to these more and more. You know, the idea that Jesus didn't die as a punishment for sin, that Jesus died in, for other reasons. He died merely as an example for us. He died just the death of a good man. He, he, he was a martyr. And perhaps, I don't know, perhaps that is what you think this morning. Perhaps you think that this death of Jesus, it was just the death of a good man. If he was son of God, well then maybe it was just an example for us to follow. Well, if that's the case, I don't get it, you know. I don't get Gethsemane. Because what, what do you do with Gethsemane if you think like that? What, what do you do with, with, with Jesus' suffering? Why, why is Jesus pleading with the cup of wrath at sin to be taken from him? Why? It doesn't make sense. There has to be more to his death than just sorrow about about upcoming physical pain. There has to be more to it than that. He's sorrowing because he's about to be punished. He's about to be punished for sin. Gethsemane is evidence of Jesus' substitutionary death. It's evidence of his vicarious death. Gethsemane, this garden, this account in this garden, it is evidence that Jesus died and was punished for sin. So I said two applications. That's one. Second one. What's that? Well, we can read Gethsemane. And it's a familiar passage, I'm sure, to a lot of us. We can read it and we can feel angry, can't we? Angry. We can be angry at Jesus' betrayers. We can be angry about what Judas does. We can be angry with the Jewish authorities because they've caused, their their actions, their future actions has caused Jesus real anguish here and we can be angry about that. But this year, as Easter approaches, why don't we do things differently? Because we can just sort of cruise through Easter year after year, can't we, as Christians? Well, this year, why don't we do something different? Why don't we re-examine Easter? Why don't we think about it more deeply and look at it afresh? What do I mean? We've heard of Rembrandt, I'm sure. Rembrandt, the Dutch artist. Well, Rembrandt once painted a picture of Calvary. And when you go home, check it out. It's called The Raising of the Cross. 
And in that picture, I may have mentioned it before, Rembrandt, he paints a small group of people. And what they're doing is they are lifting up the cross. They're putting it into place. Jesus is nailed to the cross, and this little group of people are lifting it into place. And if you look very, very closely at this painting, and if you look at the face of the person nearest the cross, lifting the cross into place, what you see is that it was a self-portrait. Rembrandt painted himself raising us to the cross. Do you get it? It wasn't just Judas that has caused Jesus to sorrow in the garden. It wasn't the fear of pain at the hands of Jewish authorities. Jesus is sorrowing in Gethsemane because of you. Because of your sin and because of my sin. Rembrandt was right. It is us. It was our sin that has caused agony for Jesus in the garden. It's us that has nailed Jesus to the cross. We are the source of Jesus' sorrow. We are the source of Jesus' sorrow. Okay, let's move on. Let's consider our next point. Let's consider the submission to the Father's will. The submission to the Father's will. Now, <clears throat> we could make a mistake with this portion of Scripture because if we read through it very, very quickly, we just skim through the, uh, the account of Gethsemane, we could come away thinking, well, this is just a portion of Scripture where Jesus is begging God to take away the cup. We could think that is all that it's about. But let's be clear about one thing here. There is no hint at Gethsemane that Jesus is rebelling against his father. There is no hint of Jesus rebelling against his father's will because in what he says, he adds the most amazing qualification to his prayer. And it's important we see it. It's in verse 39. He adds a qualification. He prays these words. Verse 39. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. Now that's a wonderful statement of submission, isn't it? He's showing himself, Jesus is showing himself to be absolutely devoted to his Father and showing himself to be absolutely in line with his Father's will. And do you not think that that submission is made all the more um, miraculous or remarkable because of what we've just seen, because of all the suffering that Jesus knows is going to be entailed in this, because, you know, submission is one thing. But submission, a great personal cost to oneself, 
That's something altogether different, isn't it? See, this is total submission here. This is the greatest example of submission ever because of what was at stake. Jesus knew that if he was going to obey his father's will, that he was going to have to endure hell. And what does he say? He says, not as I will, but as you will. Isn't that remarkable? That is perfect and total submission. Now, what can we take away from that to to apply to our own lives? Well, I said a moment ago that this year we should try and maybe um, examine Easter afresh or look at the cross again. So how about this? This Easter, let's see that the cross isn't just about a death. The Easter's not just about death and resurrection. This Easter, let's consider how we as Christians should live in light of that death. Because you see, if we grasp this example of submission that Jesus gives us here, and if we take that into our own lives, that's, that's going to change everything for us. That's going to dramatically change everything in our lives. James chapter 4 says, submit yourselves to God. So let me ask you all a a question this morning. Let me ask you, what governs your attitude to your life? What, What governs your attitude to your life? What governs your attitude to your job? What governs your attitude to how you use your time or how you use your money? What governs that? What oversees it? What governs the relationships you have or or the big questions like who you're going to marry, that sort of stuff? Does it all come down to one thing? Does it all come down to what you want? Does it all just boil down to what makes you happy? Is that it? Is that all you've got? Well, let's pretend this morning that in front of us, we've got a big sheet of paper. And on this bit of paper, we have got written a list of all our desires and all the things that we are chasing in our life. Well, this morning, let's take that bit of paper and let's rip it up. And let's chuck it in the bin. And let's start with a fresh bit of paper. And let's write at the top of that bit of paper, what does God want for me in my life? That's it, isn't it? That's the question that matters. What does God want for me in my job? How does God want me to use my time and my resources? It all boils down to what God wants for us, surely. D.L. Moody said this. He said, Let God have your life, for he can do infinitely more with it than you can. Let God have your life, because he can do infinitely more with it than you can. Friends, this Easter, let us submit to God. Let's be sure we can say, not as I will, but as you will. 
Okay, there's a, there's a, a famous mountain that you may have heard of at the very south of France, near Marseille. It's called Mont Saint-Victoire. It appears in a lot of paintings. And I've seen this, Mont Saint-Victoire. I've seen it a couple of times. I saw it three years ago, and then I saw it again last year. Mont Saint-Victoire. And um, although, having seen it the first time, I knew how big it was. I knew the scale of the mountain. Last year, when I saw it again, I was still kind of taken aback by the scale and the size of it. You see, even though I knew at the back of my mind just how big it was, seeing it again brought home to me its scale and size afresh. Now hold that thought as we look in close with our third thing here, and that is the scale of mankind's weakness. The scale of mankind's weakness. And let's focus here on the second time that Jesus prays at Gethsemane, okay? The second time, because I don't know if you saw it when we read through it, but the second time that Jesus prays is very, very different to the first time. It's subtle, but it's very different. Because he says, the second time he doesn't ask that the cup will be taken from him. He doesn't ask that. He says instead, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken from me, may your will be done. See, it's more, the second time he prays, it's more resigned, isn't it? It's like his... It's like his thinking's almost advanced. He's more accepting of what's happened. So the question we've surely got to ask is, why has that happened? Why has Jesus become more resigned to what's going on? Well, ask yourself what happens in between times. He prays twice. What happens in between those prayers? Well, he goes back to the disciples, doesn't he? He returns to Peter, James, and John. And he finds them sleeping. They're sleeping. And that, I think, is significant. The fact that they were sleeping. Now, we've got to tread pretty carefully here. Because uh, in Gethsemane, what we're dealing with really are the inner workings and the inner relationships of the Trinity. So in some ways, yeah, we can probably only speculate. But what seems to be the case here is that in answer to Jesus' first prayer, the Father provides an illustration. The Father provides a visual reminder for Jesus of just why, yeah, he does have to accept the cup. It's a visual reminder of why he has to go to the cross. Because I bet you everyone in this room has seen somebody asleep before, haven't we? Sometimes it's not a pretty sight right enough, but we've all seen our spirit spouse if we have one we've seen them sleep we've seen our 
our kids asleep if we have them. And what we know is that when a person is asleep, they look at their most vulnerable and they look at their most helpless. And you see, that is the picture that we've got at Gethsemane. You see, just as my encounter with Monsan Victoire, it reinforced for me something I already knew. It reinforced the scale of the mountain. So this confrontation that Jesus has with his sleeping disciples, it reinforces something that Jesus already knew. It reinforces just how weak and helpless we are in regard to our salvation. God provides an illustration. It's, it's, it's like he's saying to his son, take away this, this cup of wrath. You know, are you kidding? These, these, these people can't save themselves. They can't even stay awake for an hour. And folks, who knows where you are spiritually this morning, you know? You, you could have come through the doors of this church this morning not as a Christian. You could have come here and you do not have a, a, a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, if that's the case, then please see from Gethsemane that what we have to understand about the gospel and our starting place for understanding the gospel and salvation is an understanding of just how weak we are because of our sin, because of our nature, because of your sin. You can't do anything to attain or merit salvation. We are helpless and we are weak. Now, we started the sermon, or this sermon series is called uh, What's So Special About Easter, isn't it? Well, that's what's so special about Easter. It's not a myth about, a myth to, to get people to buy cream eggs, and it's not about an Easter bunny. This is the reason here that Easter is so amazing, that God acted on our behalf to do something that we could not do. Easter is about the matchless love of Jesus Christ. That he was willing to go through that. That he was willing to be punished. That he was willing to die for sin because we could do nothing. We are too weak. So as we consider that, and as we consider Gethsemane, surely, surely it must prompt us to give everything that we are and everything that we have to Jesus. Gethsemane, Easter, it must prompt us to worship him, to worship Jesus, 
as our Lord and as our King and, yeah, as our Saviour. Let's pray.